Full house, fantastic. All of you obsessed with the gut. <laughs> Hi, welcome to All About Women here at the wonderful Sydney Opera House. I'm delighted to be here too. My name is Natasha Mitchell from ABC Radio National. I'm a science journalist and broadcaster and various things. Now, who would have guessed that a refreshingly frank field guide to your faeces, <laughs> a road map to your intestines, a rollicking good read about your gut and all its machinations, a book that takes toilet talk to the masses, <laughs> who would have thought that this would become an international publishing sensation? It has millions of copies around the world. It's sold in uh, at least 18 countries, probably more by now. That's what's happened with Gut, the inside story of our body's most underrated organ. German student and scientist Julia Enders was 24 years old when she published this book, chock full of intriguing research and facts about the gut, about its function, about its health. It's beautifully illustrated by her cartoonist sister. Before that, she was just 22 when a science slam that she did, a kind of public communication, science communication event, went totally viral and prompted the book writing. And so a star was born. Julia is a physician. She's finishing her doctorate in microbiology at the Institute for Microbiology in Frankfurt, where she just looked at one very particular bacteria. She may or may not talk about that. So to talk shit with us, <laughs> and I know you don't mind because you have paid to be here, please welcome Julia to Australia. I'm very excited to be here today and to talk to all of you and I think I want to do two things um, in the next 20 to 25 minutes. I want to let you in on like three things that um, had the most impact on me after learning about them um, when I was researching for the book and I also want to let you in on some background information on the process of uh, producing, writing this book. And the most important, I think, background information is this, probably. This is my sister, Jill Enders, and she um, was not only my first and most honest reader um, and also illustrator to the book, but she was also somebody very important to be in, the, in my back, to have my back, I think is what you say in English. Um, because I was very young when I was writing this book, and the publishing world is already a fully developed business world, and I was kind of like thrown into that. And to really bring the book, um, to publish the book the way I wanted, to have the tone I wanted and that I felt was most authentic, um, it really took many fights, actually, and many arguments where I would have surrendered if I wouldn't have known her by my side, because she really understood me and she would question me um, very honestly. And so I think the book became what it became 
um, because we were sort of together and I knew her by my side. And uh, otherwise, I think in Germany, for example, the book would have been called like Eight Meter Wellness in the Tummy or something. <laughs> and they wanted me to have like all these lists, do this, do not do this. And so um, she's very important in this process. And this gracious being um, drew things like this. <laughs> <laughs> This was actually meant to be in the very beginning of the book. Uh, we were sitting down brainstorming, and um, after a while, actually pretty quick, I had like this idea, and I said, oh, I know how we're going to start the book. We're going to be like, dear reader, please follow me like Alice in the Wonderland follows the white rabbit. <laughs> Just don't ask which hole we're going to fall into. <laughs> And we both like, had a big laugh, and we thought, like, oh, this was easy, and it's so good, and we have the beginning of the book, and that's it, we're done, you know, high five. <laughs> I think it took us about 20 minutes um, when we realized, ah, no, we can't pull this off, because it wouldn't be fair, it wouldn't be fair to our readers, because this wasn't the way this had started for us. We were just as embarrassed as everybody else if you're like going to the toilet, but your roommate's standing in the hallway right next to it, and you're like, eh. Or like, you know, all these things. We were just like, this was a taboo topic for us just when we were growing up, for like basically like everyone else. So it was a very different effect um, that made us open up to this topic and actually starting like loving it and like worshiping it <laughs> in a way. Um, so I, I think the effect is that you can look behind this facade of skin because usually we're, it's hidden from us, all those amazing things that are being done for us. And I think once you've, you learn about them, you get more information, um, you, you cannot not like, value and like and admire this organ that's very responsible and smart and like, I would even say, mm, delightful. <laughs> like, it's a very, uh, I think, once you get closer and closer and closer, it's hard to like, not um, look up to it and be somewhat impressed. So I think even the toilet business deserves this respect. And this was the way this whole started for me, because my roommate once came into my kitchen after he had a night of heavy drinking, and he bluntly like, asked me, Julia, you study medicine, how does pooping work? <laughs> and I was standing there, and I, I did study medicine, but I did not know how pooping works, and I had to go up to my room and look it up in three different books. And it turns out, us humans, we actually have a very complex and very clean way of delivering this business compared to many, almost all other animals. Um, and I was very surprised to learn that there's not only this outer sphincter that we all know, we kind of like know what's going on, we can control it, we can be like, ah, oh, but like not with the mouth. <laughs> and <laughs> there's also like an inner one, and I didn't know this, and the process is actually kind of interesting, so let's just like go through it once. Um, when we're like, when the rests from digestions are delivered there, the inner sphincter will open up and like let through a little bit for testing. So then sensory cells can analyze what's being delivered. Is it solid? Is it gaseous? And then they tell the brain through nerv nervous, um, nervous cells, neurons. And um, the, this is the moment when you realize, oh, I've got to go to the toilet. And then the brain does what it's supposed to do. It connects us and adapts to the outer world. We like look and check. <laughs> and. Um, 
it can, you know, think and be like, well, I'm at the Sydney Opera House, so it would probably be a provoking thing, bad to do. Um, gaseous, maybe, if I sit, like, on the side, and I, <laughs> and I can trust myself to pull this off silently. <laughs> and then, um, when the brain then communicates with the outer sphincter, because those two are, like, close, um, and then the outer sphincter can say, well, you know, opera house, uh, let's just push it back in the waiting line. <laughs> Or if you're at home and we have really nothing better to do, you know, let it go. <laughs> so yeah, and as funny as this might like sound in the first like few minutes, it really was one of the three things that changed a lot for me and how I live on a daily basis. And I think um, one effect was that I just, through knowledge, I got to know this inner sphincter, and I thought, well, it's actually like, oh, it's so nice. Like, this one really cares about just me and my insights, and the nervous information it gets is really just what needs to be out, so I feel good. This is all it gets. It's not connected to the brain, what other people think, how they react to me. It really just has this info, just cares about me for once. That's a rare thing. And so it got promoted, I believe. In, in my uh, yeah, in my worshiping it, and um, after that, I used to never like be, like to go to public restrooms so much. But after that, psh, I could go anywhere. I could go on the train, on the plane, because I just liked this muscle, and I would like listen to it more and like say, okay, if you say so, well, I try. <laughs> I'll try to arrange that. <laughs> A bit philosophical to me now, almost, um, because it's this subject of how much do I do to be good to my inner self, and how many compromises do I do to be okay with the outer world as well while I do so. And this is a very human question. Sometimes I feel like this is also a very female question, um, between the, the balance between inner and outer sphincter. In the book, this is how this looks, and I'm showing this because I want to tell you that it was actually one of the hardest drawings in the book, because we sat for three days, and I was never happy about the way the outer sphincter looked. Because he, yeah, he looked so strict, and like he would just like push back everything, be like a party pooper, so strict. And I thought, this isn't fair to him, because he has his you know, task too, he's important too, it has to be like a balance out of the two. And then I had to sit down and like talk adjectives and characteristics over and over again. My sister would listen, and she would ask more questions. And then after a while, she was like, ah! I think I have it. The way you talk about him, it reminds me so much of the roommate of my boyfriend. Because <laughs> he would always read books on how to behave well, how to eat correctly. He would read the news all the time. He would like mediate with the outer world on a very professional level. So that's now how he looks. He basically really looks a lot like him. <laughs> I think he even has pants like them. <laughs> And, I mean, we, of course, had to tell him before the book was published, <laughs> which was sort of an awkward breakfast. But I guess in the end it was good, because we could explain to him that for us it could also be a compliment to be the asshole. <laughs> yeah. 
And knowing about your gut and how the things look actually can be very helpful. In this scenario, when you know another muscle, you understand that it's actually better to go on the toilet in the squatting-like position. Researchers have shown this uh, by x-raying people who had just like swallowed liquids and uh, like lightning things and like x-raying them while they're on the toilet. So understanding that there's a muscle that will like pull back and, and make a a turn in the end of the colon, and this muscle loosening up a bit when you put your legs up on a stool or something is something that you understand when you know all oh, this, you know, how the anatomic um, relations are. And I'm very glad because my sister made me sit model for this drawing. <laughs> and I'm very thankful that she changed my hairstyle so nobody would know. Well, <laughs> now you know, but yeah. And this is something um, that goes through the whole first part of the book. It's really the question, why does this look so weird and what is it good for? And maybe do I start liking it more now that I know why it's like that? And this goes for things like the esophagus. Why does the esophagus go like on the side into the stomach, not straight? Uh, well, it saves you from like um, throwing up when you're laughing really hard, for example. When you apply pressure, it all goes up and not to the side so much. So that's a smart design, but it also creates this bubble right here that will, for some people, be a bit uncomfortable after they've eaten too much. Um, the air bubble will be pressed up against the nerves that are close to the heart, so you might feel nauseous up to like even having pain. And it also explains really nicely why it's easier to burp when you're say, laying on the left side compared to the right. And then other things like how does the architecture of the small intestine have to be? An organ that's responsible for us being living beings, like how does it have to be structurized so that it has this like amazing process of taking something energy has put together, like the nature has used energy to put together an apple or a cow, and then to say it roughly, when we chop this up, the energy is free and we can be living beings because of that process. So how does an organ that mediates this process have to look like, and all the intolerances and things that come with it? And then just simple questions like, why do we have an appendix? And actually very new hypotheses on questions like these that I think haven't been spread too much to the public. <coughs> so while the first part of the book looks at how does it look like, the second part is looking at the things in action, how they move with the nerve cells directing them. And we follow a piece of cake through like the digestive tract. And I like understanding all the processes because many movements of our gastrointestinal tract seem a bit overwhelming at times, like having reflux or vomiting or constipation. You feel like you can't really do much about it and it kind of feels uncomfortable at times. And I think understanding the knowledge and the reasons and the why behind it often helps a lot with those feelings and then makes you cooperate better with them. I think, for example, with constipation, this is uh, very true, because many people will give you all kinds of advices, but once you've really understood what type of constipation, for example, is the one you're having, you can really make uh, a clearer decision on what could work for this type of constipation. So understanding the movement, uh, movement to be able to work together with it better, something I like. But that's not the thing that changed the most for me. Oh, and then, for example, like misunderstandings, like the grumbling of the stomach. You think like you're hungry, but actually this is just in between digestion, so the small intestine has time to clean up. Small intestine is a big lover of cleanliness. When there's no food to be processed, it will create this big, like, strong muscular wave to like clear out everything that doesn't need to be there anymore. 
And this is why the happens. So when you're like a little embarrassed at your office that you're making these noises, it's actually because there's a very eager organ cleaning up. <laughs> and um, I like this also because it shows nicely that we have, a, I think, sometimes a wrong picture. From the eight meters of uh, intestine, really just one has to do with feces business. All the other seven are very clean. After digestion, they hardly smell like anything. So um, this is something to reconsider, I think. So the second thing that changed um, for me a lot was um, really getting into the whole topic of the gut-brain axis. And this was um, the start of me getting into this was actually a classmate of mine in university who had killed himself. And I had just sat next to him one day before he did that. And, um, I, at that point of time, I'd already like, read a lot about the gut, and I knew it was connected to so many things, hormones and immune cells and whatever. I really didn't know that there was a gut-brain axis, and I thought maybe it would be interesting to know more about it. I had noticed that he had had like, a very like, strong, bad breath, and I wasn't sure, like, could this be like a hint or something? So I started trying to find information on that, and then I found out there already was lots of very interesting studies, and one of them, um, one of the researchers that impressed me a whole lot was Bud Craig, when he, um, he has been like for 20 years following nerves to the brain, where exactly they're going, and showing where they have effects. And for example, information from the gut could never reach the visual cortex, otherwise while you're digesting you'd see all kinds of colors and shapes but it can actually get to other areas that are quite interesting, like morality, fear, or self-awareness, processing emotions, for example, too. So this was interesting, and he also showed that the nerves could go to a part of the brain, the insula, that in his theory produces a picture of our whole body, like saying, my feet are cold, I just had a nice sandwich, I'm a bit worried, and then you put together a picture, and you do this every few seconds, creating sort of like a movie of your self-awareness, how you feel. And the gut has nerves that can go there. And when you combine this with research, for example, with Emran Meyer, who showed that people with irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease have higher risks of having anxiety or depression, even when you compare them with other people who have chronic diseases that aren't much fun either, um, this starts to like, form an interesting picture, I think. And we've seen some quite interesting animal studies where like, animals would change behavior when they were given different bacteria, and even in the positive direction, so making them less stressed, learning better, and things like this. So this all together started to form a new picture for me, and it was actually one of... So the second thing that changed is I changed my perspective on mood. I look at my mood differently now, and I think many of us externalize a whole lot when we think about our mood. And oftentimes, I, I find this very understandable. Uh, during the day, we often feel like a brain and a screen, I, I think. And then we find, try to find reasons outside that are making us feel the way we feel. And with knowing that mood also comes together from other places, not only around you, but like signals that your gut might send up to the brain to inform how the whole rest of your body is doing. And not only uh, information from eyes or ears, but like all kinds of hormones or how the immune cells are doing or what the bacteria are producing, just to like, uh, like give some information. Um, and to put this in the insula, uh, within the creation of how am I doing, um, then I think makes sense and makes you think a bit more about, well, 
how did I treat my body? And now when I wake up really early sometimes, I do this a few times a year and I'm worried and I'm like, oh, did I do this right? And should I do this more? And was that okay? And then now I think, okay, hold on a second. What did I eat last night? Did I eat too late? Did I stress my body? Did I stress my gut? And then I get up and like eat something light and have a tea or something. And it's surprising to me how well this uh, technique has worked actually, because it sounds so simple. But yeah, this is one of the three things that changed. And the third part is my probably like my absolute favorite. I get uh, very excited about this every time. It's the bacterium. <laughs> and because um, I do my doctoral thesis in microbiology, and um, this is something popping up, and I'm sure you've sort of heard of it somewhere. We have about like two kilograms, up to two kilograms of bacteria in our guts that produce all kinds of things. They will help us digest, they will teach our immune system, they will protect us from bad bacteria that come along. Um, and many of them are very mysterious, we don't know a lot about them, but what I try to do in this third part of the book is I want the readers to understand why researchers are even looking into questions like how can these bacteria influence our body weight or our risk for diabetes or our mental health or things like inflammatory diseases like rheumatic arthritis and um, one question that I was asked uh, you know like very often when talking about this was our body weight how this could be influenced by bacteria. And this was actually one of the topics that started to draw a lot of attention for microbiome research. And um, what they saw in the beginning was mice who, were, who got bacteria from overweight people. And they would suddenly put on a lot of weight. And then um, when they got bacteria from normal weight people, this would be, could be reversed. And then they started thinking maybe there are some bacteria that can harvest calories better from our food. Um, thus making a low-carb diet, at least for a limited amount of time, actually uh, a bit more rational and maybe working. And then, but after a while, they realized this could not have been the case because some mice put on 60% more body fat and they were like, eating the same things and it was just mathematically not possible. So they, they had other theories like the bacteria could probably influence other areas like our thyroid gland by producing tiny molecules that go into the bloodstream or even up to our brain and influencing processes to build up um, appetite, cravings and satiety, because they were chemically capable of doing that and by being so small, diffusing in the blood and through the blood ba brain barrier in the brain also. And I like this area of research, not only because it makes you like have a new perspective on how to get the bikini body you want, but also because I really admire how this um, field of research is starting to build up. Because one side is really looking at what bacteria could be wrong, what could be broken, so people put on more weight with what kind of gut bacteria. But the other side of research is really looking into what did we used to have that used to protect us from putting on body weight, or what good bacteria can we take from people that eat and eat and eat and don't put on much weight. Um, so I like this, and I, I'm not saying the other one is bad. For, for decades, this was, and centuries, this was very good for us in curing many diseases by looking what's broken, what's wrong, but also by looking what's good and what can we take from this. Um, I just find this to be a very interesting and um, pulling, like in a teasing way, like a good way to pull new knowledge and ideas to also look at it this way. And then the third part, and the part that changed for me again, things in my life, was looking at cleanliness. 
and what actual new or modern or the right cleanliness would look like when you think about the gut. And in the beginning when I wrote this text, I didn't think it would change much for me at all. I knew the hygiene hypothesis, so people would get more allergies because things would maybe be too clean. So I thought, I'm just gonna put this together and I, I know what it's about. And then I started reading more about the history of cleanliness and our perception of it. And I realized we started off on a very interesting foot, knowing bacteria, when tuberculosis started to set on, and people suddenly knew, okay, bacteria are the things that are responsible for tuberculosis, they're invisible, they might kill you. So there was a big fear building up, and we would like, get all these rules on hygiene. There are some really nice um, pieces of paper that were handed out in the 20s in Germany, saying like, um, don't, uh, don't use the same toothbrush, don't use the same t towel. Some even had the wordings, um, uh, limit kissing to the erotically unavoidable. <laughs> really like that also. And so you could see we started um, having this perspective on cleanliness, which very much sticks to our societies, the Western societies, till this day. It's, it's in, a, in a way fear-based. And this continued on in the 50s, 60s, when fear became a way, like cleaning became a way of, of having like, some sense of um, structure and order in a life feeling sometimes a bit chaotic at times. So you would like generate um, yeah, structures and calmness and order. And uh, to this day, I think it started becoming more and more abstract. We now buy disinfectants that when you've cleaned with them, everything looks exactly how it looked before, but you still think it was really worth paying the money. So what's behind? What are the abstract ideas behind that? I think that's a very interesting question. And when we look at the recent science, we see that 95% of all bacteria on this planet don't harm us at all. They really, either they help us or they don't have the genetic possibilities to do anything to us. So this is a, a, a perspective on cleanliness that's not very fact-oriented. And in fact, when you look at cleanliness in the gut, you see that really cleanliness is about a balance all the time. And you can't put in energy to stay away from the bed all the time. This is not how it works. It's nice to do this also, but this is not the whole deal. The whole deal is having more, like enough good bacteria and then some bet are even all right to get the immune system some sightseeing, some training to know what they're looking out for, really. So I started having this different perspective and then a few weeks after I'd written the text, um, I held a talk at my university about my doctorate work and I made a mistake by a thousand. And I realized it like just when I was done. And I walked home and I was like, oh, oh I've, I made a mistake by a thousand. <laughs> and then I, 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 I like calmed and I said, okay, that's all right though. Most of the time I said like useful, good things. So there was this mistake, but I, I, I think it was still balanced. It was like still a clean thing, you know? And that's when I realized, oh wow, I believe I took my perspective on cleanliness to a further level, maybe we all do, I don't know, that's my theory at the moment. We take our, how we handle cleanliness, sometimes a bit also like a life hygiene. And knowing that this is not always about sheltering from the bad, but fostering the good, like in the gut, was something that was very easing and comforting to me and helped me in a way. So in this uh, meaning, I hope I told you mostly good and useful things today. I thank you very much for your attention and I'm looking forward to the questions.
You wrote this book, Julia, when you were 24. Yeah, um, 23, yeah. 23, as a student. That's still the age where that matters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said, like, 23 and a half or something. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Very precise. <laughs> Millions of copies later, and I'm just thinking, so who's going to get to play you in the Hollywood blockbuster? <laughs> I wonder, who would play you in the film? Oh, oh, um, oof, that's a good question, especially because I don't have a TV and I don't watch that many films. And who would play the gut? Oh. I think I like having different aspects of the gut being like persons, but not the gut itself, because everyone has one, right? Yeah. So we all have our own, and then there are quirky characters in it, the small intestine being like always so eagerly pushing everything forward, and the large intestine being like, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just be calm and get all the difficult things out of it. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> they have different characteristics, but they're like unique for everyone. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is what so, so, uh, makes this such a rich read. You're playful with ideas and you give your your biological beings personalities <laughs> and I, I think that's a really interesting approach to take to science communication I mean it's obviously had a, a tremendous impact uh, yeah I mean that's the way I feel it starts to become after you know what you've learned you forget when you like really take the knowledge as a part of you mm. I feel like it just becomes a soul or a personality, it just be, like that's the way I memorize how to treat the small intestine or how to treat the large intestine. I memorize how the characteristics are when I learned about it. Mm. What interests me, th this work around connecting gut and brain, and of course you explain in great detail how the gut has its own brain, it's the mm. largest sensory organ in our body, mm. this, this interconnectivity is something that Chinese medicine has talked about over many centuries. It's part of the yoga tradition as mm. well. M mainstream contemporary medicine has been reluctant and even res resistant, yeah. resistant yeah. even, to mm. exploring this connection. Why do you think that resistance was there? It's shifting now, but why do you think it was there? Well, I think for some part, maybe sometimes it's really to have a... Ah, there we go. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like um, it really is to always state they're different from alternative medicine. I think there is something like this where you feel they're just like drawing very strong borders to show the difference because sometimes there is harm or has, there has been harm caused by alternative medicine they're trying to like fend it off. Mm. And then many years we didn't have the technical properties to like look into this area of research. We've just like had m machines to analyze those millions of bacteria um, for maybe 10, 20 years now, and it's still very expensive to do so. So we didn't really have the tech technical equipment. And then also I think in the science world, it probably wasn't the coolest thing to say on the Sunday tea, you know, my husband researches poop or something. <laughs> you know, so I think there were probably more aspects, but for me it had something um, quite like peaceful when I, I saw this because my mom and my grandma are always very much into alternative medicine. And I never thought it was crazy because I grew up like this and many things helped me, but there was always like a contrast between what I was studying and what I, I had seen at home. Mm. And then seeing that when then these two things suddenly start to overlap and find places where they actually meet, 
um, was very calming for me. Yeah, I quite liked yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The meeting of paradigms, yeah. if you like. Um, there, there still, though, is uh, anxiety about some of the claims that get made about the gut and gut health. Hmm. Um, you know, scientists feel like that. You know, cl too many claims are made when the evidence isn't quite there yet or is way off yeah and so there's a fine line isn't there there's a real gut obsession yeah um and some of the claims made aren't necessarily based in evidence mm. but people have their own experiential story around their gut as well so there's a tension there isn't there yeah and i absolutely understand this and for me the most important like the most difficult chapter in the book really was the gut brain axis because the, at the time that i was writing there was basically just like animal studies and some very interesting theories and i had like a month of sitting in front of a black like blank page because i thought I don't want to make false promises. I don't want people to like think now they can cure their mental health problem by just, you know, doing this or this. And I felt very anxious about putting it in the wrong words. And it took me quite a while to like get to a point where I was okay with it. Because I wanted to tell people about this and I wanted to tell about the thoughts that are in the room, but not making it sound like now this is the new wonder healing method to cure everything. And from, this is why now, in Germany at least, um, I updated the book and put in more like the researches that have been in the last two or three years with humans, ah. real humans. Not just nice, mice. Yeah, it's nice to know how to relieve. Because we don't share all the same gut flora with mice. No. So all those mice no. studies that and have been also done. Also, it's, like, it's nice to know how to relieve your, house, how, your pet mouse stress, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's really in the end about your own. And there are differences in the results, and you can see them now like with very few studies only. But I think um, the problem for me mostly is explaining the theories, being clear that they are how they are and what we have in human studies, and trying to not get people to be too anxious about it. I feel like uh, many people would then start to believe, oh, now I, I need to buy all the good bacteria and put them in my gut because otherwise I'll be uh, you know, rotten <laughs> or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like to also explain that all of us already have probiotic bacteria in our gut, maybe inherited from mom, grandma, from a nice plant we ate from something. So it's already there and just like calm and, and tell what, like how the actual science is at the moment. Yeah, because there's potentially a multi-gazillion dollar industry, isn't there, in selling yeah. people products that they don't need? I mean, mostly it's not harmful to use them, but I, I don't want people to think their body is weak and doesn't have enough good things. Mm. And the, now they need to go out and buy this. For some things, it really makes sense for diarrhea, especially in children and the elderly. Probiotics are a very nice thing. Um, but then others, you really have to know, do I want to do this experiment? And, or is my body good enough itself if I help it a little here and there? One of the really interesting things in this for me was reading about the idea that um, different people have different gut types, mm. you know, that you can kind of classify different people according to the gut flora that they have. Yeah, which scientists is are already like starting to criticise this model now. Are they? Tell yeah. us more. Well, they say that when you look with different sets of data, you can like try to make a gut type out of everything, sort of. So they're saying they're not so sure this is a stable way of looking at it. But I think it just generated, um, in the beginning at least, uh, a clear way to look at it so people would have less fear of 
going into this research because it's really scary. You have the immune system, you have the bacteria, hormones, so much like what the people eat. So it's very complex. But having this generated, I think, easiness in the beginning for many researchers. And then again, people do have different um, genetic profiles. How many genetics in the bacteria community of their guts do they have for um, processing meat, for example? If you eat lots of meat, you'll have different bacteria because they'll specialize and foster off eating those different meats. And then others eat more plant-based. And so they'll have bacteria that have enzymes to digest those plants for them. Because really what the bacteria are is like a huge, um, how do you call this thing where you get a hammer and a screwdriver toolbox? A toolbox. Bacteria are like a huge toolbox of genetics that we can very fastly acquire and borrow um, to do things that we ourselves aren't capable of. I mean, I was fascinated, and I'd like to come to all of you, I was fascinated with the, also the comment you made at the very beginning that, and this is, there's, you know, interesting debates around this too, but that, that knowing the way you came into the world, <laughs> either caesarean or through birth canal, <laughs> you can then, in a sense, make a bet about what health afflictions you might grapple with later on in life. Yeah. Fascinating work, isn't it? <laughs> that kind of... That, that process of being birthed hmm. exposes you to a really sort of interesting suite of bacteria courtesy of your mum. Yeah, and also the, like, because when you're born, you can, like, when you deliver vaginally, you get all these lactic acid bacteria that are there to protect... Um, you know, up to the uterus, they get more dense and more acidic. So when the baby comes out, it gets a layer of like protection from bacteria that make acids, and acids are very protective, which you see in like sauerkraut, which takes a long time to go bad because the acid really protects. Bad bacteria usually don't like to live in the acid. So the baby gets this uh, protection layer from the mum to really, yeah, you know, <laughs> have a good start in the world. Mm. And um, when you're delivering, also the way of delivering, you can be turned with your head to the, like, to the upper, upper front or you can look to the back when you come out. And it's far easier to be born the way to look to the back. So you even get a bit of gut bacteria <laughs> this way. So it's really a smart design. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Let's come to some questions and comments. We might just need the lights down a little bit so we can see our questioners. Number one, thank you. Hi. Um, Hello. I have probably a pretty basic question. I um, don't have a large intestine. I was taken out three years ago. Mm. Um, and I was just wondering, when you're referring to the gut and gut bacteria and all of that, is that the small intestine or is it both or, like, just... Yeah. Yeah. Where does the bacteria live? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so what happens is um, when you go through the gastrointestinal tract, the density of bacteria will grow and grow and grow and grow. And the, really the biggest part is in the large intestine. Um, we have concentrations like 10 to the 12th, uh, but it builds up in the, in the small intestine. It's not too good when there are too many bacteria in the small intestine, because that's when people feel bloated or they can even be nauseous, because they're not meant to like, disturb the digestion process there too much, because they produce gas, gases and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but the thing is, when your large intestine is being removed, what scientists see is that actually the whole system adapts and that the small intestine will start to like, take over some bacterial um, tasks that earlier used to be in the colon. So some bacteria that used to be like, typical in the colon will grow up a little bit and 
the small intestine also will um, usually um, add some surface area yeah. when this happens, and the bacteria will then be um, in, in this uh, last part of the small intestine and like take over. It takes a while, it takes time to yeah. bounce and balance, but after a while um, it, it adapts quite nicely. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Oh, I'd love to ask more questions about what it's like to live without a large intestine, but we might need to save that for later. Um, thank you very much. Hi, number four. Hi. Hello. Is this working? Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, so a lot of dietary recommendations are around, you know, eat two pieces of fruit or one serve of dairy. Mm. A couple of years ago, the Brazilian government came out with recommendations around eat slowly and focus on your food or try not to eat in front of the television or when you're in a rush. I wonder if you have thoughts on the importance of not just what we eat, but how we eat it. Yeah. And also how governments, institutions, our GPs can tell people how important both are. Mm. I've great questions. I have strong opinions on both. <laughs> um, <laughs> one is um, about how to eat, I think. Um, the, the thing is when we're stressed, and we've known this very early on actually, is the whole gastrointestinal tract will save energy and give it to the brain or the muscles to run from something dangerous or to solve a problem, because that's usually what stress is caused by. So it will like, like take down all kinds of energy. It will have less blood flow. So if you put in a camera, you could actually see the walls like going from a pink color to like more pale. You could see this visually. And then it will produce less mucus, which is our thick skin in the gut, but like our protection layer. And you will have less immune systems, so sorting out some bacteria will not like happen as effectively. So stress, in a way, takes like draws energy from your gut. And that's okay, because sometimes there is a problem we need to solve, or there's something that we need to run from, and it's okay that our body works this way. Just when we overstretch it, and we sometimes tend to like sacrifice our body all the time, but hardly ever sacrificing something for our body. Mm. So when this gets out of balance, and you, you've by now maybe heard that I'm a big fan of balance, <laughs> uh, but yeah, if, if you like, um, in German we say ausnutzen, if you are mean, if somebody who's really nice to you, he's like doing all these things and you're taking advantage, um, then I think this gets out of balance. So eating in a calm way, giving like back the energy that your gut borrows you all the time when you have like little stress moments, is just fair, I believe. And then mm. this emerges with your... Have compassion for your gut. Yeah, because it, it sacrifices and it's one of the organs that does this on a very high scale because it's very connected due to its neuronal, neuronic similarities to the brain. It's, it's very much engaged in, in stress the brain has. Um, so it will do this uh, very vividly compared to other organs who are not that impressed by how stressed you are. <laughs> mean, <laughs> but like that's why the gut's so great too. Um, but yeah, and the, the other thing was how should we tell those advices? And I myself, that's why I said in the beginning, I didn't want to write like a typical advisor book because I really dislike people telling me do this, do this, do this. Mm. But what I like is when somebody explains something to me, like the stress thing. Oh, okay, so there's less blood flow, there's less mucus, there's less immune protection. I get it now, you know? If I get it, if I understand it, that's all I want from people. And then I make my own decisions. Then I'll say, okay, this week I've totally blown it. I've stressed myself out over this and this and this. I know it, it's okay, but I will now be fair to it again. I can make my own decisions. I can know when I want to sacrifice my body for a while or not. Nobody tell me when or how to eat, but like explain me why you want mm. to tell me this. And then I will handle it. 
Yeah, that's refreshing, isn't it? If only all public policy was like that. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, thank you, upstairs. Hi, Julia, I just oh. wanted to ask. Uh, hello. Um, firstly, if you have a name for the condition that you had as a young girl where you were covered in spots, and secondly, if in your research you came across any association with the numbers of appendicitis in Australia and in the UK, if there's like a genetic or perhaps cultural or geographical association with that at all? Yeah, that's intriguing, isn't it? Did you get that? Because it's higher. Are appendicitis, is appendicitis, is there, yeah. is there a... In, in Australia, would, there's a, like a high incidence of appendicitis, and in the UK oh. as well. I would know think that. so, but I don't, I don't know, but I would think so, because um, the fibre content is especially low, I think, in, uh, in England, I, know, I don't know for Australia. Low. But then, okay, low too. So um, one thing that I've oh, heard from know. one of my pediatrician professors is that many times in children, um, they will like have a, a, a type of constipation, and then little pieces of the very solid um, stool will like clog up the appendix, and then the inflammation will really start to get going. So if you don't eat a lot of fiber, then this will probably be more likely to happen. But then I don't know if this is the whole explanation for it. Could just be a part of it. Could just be for some people, and then other people it might be microbiota related or something. I don't know. So um, this is that. And the other thing, my skin condition. Um, I don't know the English word in German. It's dermatitis herpetiformis dermatitis. Yeah. Um, so it's um, a part of the celiac disease. So. Eating, not eating oh. gluten worked well, <laughs> but that isn't the case for everybody with dermatitis. Yeah, just interesting. Thank, thank you. Actually, yes. when I read this book first a couple of years ago, I just had my appendix out, oh. and 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 it was you know it takes a bit of time to get everything moving again after you've had your appendix out. I discovered, and as soon as I read your book, everything got moving again. <laughs> ah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Do we have anything at number two? We've got one at four there. Thank you. Very short one. Um, do you have anything that you do on a daily basis or any suggestions for one thing people in this room can do to help their gut on a just on a daily basis? Something simple? Something simple would Dr. be... Dr. Julia. Turn around and look in the toilet. Because that's what comes out in the end, you know? You can, like... Yeah. Check out, what, and that's why I like to put this in the book. We put like um, a little lecture on feces, or I don't know. <laughs> it's lecture. Oh, I have to show you, um, because I, I find it so lovely. I just gave my sister the text, and she made like a little frame around it with like really <laughs> from the small intestine. Well, I just really like the way. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, there's a, a scale. We call it the Bristol stool scale, and you can just like see the consistency. And you can do this at home, like comfortably, because I feel like many people don't talk about this. And I'm not saying they have to, but some people go for their whole lifetime thinking what they produce is normal, and then they found out it's actually not, and it's because of some food intolerance, for example, that can cause diarrhea or constipation. Milk sometimes can do both. And then um, just looking and turning around and seeing like the consistency, color, all right, okay. And if you feel really uncomfortable, you can flush. It's very like safe. And so, <laughs> so this is one thing everybody can do. 
And then I like listening to your gut a bit. I think maybe this is a nicer or easier once you know more about it. Because some people and some old doctors will even still do this. They will say, oh, having a tummy ache you know, once a week or like having diarrhea every other time is normal. And I'm like, what? No, it's not. You know, if we, if we uh, c communicate and ask, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> have I treated you OK? Do you, are you craving something? Um, and then I think listening to your appetite is something that I like, because our appetite's actually very smart, and people usually don't believe that, because they think it's stupid, it's like wants chocolate and fries and chips and all these bad things. But when you look at the science behind it, the reason why we want those things, like food industry tricks us just really smartly, because when, for example, crispy things, those are big on what we like, mm. is when you like bite a plant or something that's very fresh, it hasn't la laid on the ground for long, but just like fallen off, very fresh, then it'll be like crispy because all the cells will explode because they're still very um, full. Mm. Um, so that's just why our body and appetite likes like the crispy feeling of things, for example. And then other combinations like um, fat and sugar or acid and sugar are just like acid and sugar is usually natural um, things, very healthy, like fruit or fermented foods. But when we take Coca-Cola, for example, if we take out the acid, I think none of you would like it. You would find it disgusting. You would not drink a second glass. So your body's not stupid wanting so much sugar. It's just being tricked by putting acid to it. Because mm, we know it from fruit or we know it from fermented. And then, so I like following your appetite, but like knowing where the food industry tricks it. So when you know these few areas, then you can like listen to all the other appetites, and they're really smart. And we especially see this in pregnant women. My sister just uh, gave birth to her first baby, and she, while she was pregnant, it was amazing to us because in each different time zone, she was craving exactly the foods that were necessary in the development of the child at that time. We like kept looking up, and it was insane. So mm. I'm, I was mm. very amazed by that. And I, I believed in appetite before, but I think I even more so do after this. Mm. And. Um, I think that's it, and like, be nice to your bacteria. Be nice. <laughs> I love the fact that I, when I found out that we're more bacteria than human, I think everything changed for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, much less existential angst after that. <laughs> Number three, thank you, and then I'll come um, to one. Hi, Julia. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, colonic irrigation and on detoxing, whether these are good for your gut. And also, I just wondered, um, many women now um, who deliver their babies via cesarean birth um, opt to have a swab of their mm. vaginal bacteria and placed on the baby to get at that bacteria. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. As well? Thanks. Thanks. So about the cleansing, um, I believe at first it's very important to know how your gut cl cleans itself. And once we have the rumbling from the small intestine, you don't always have to hear that. You just hear it if there's a lot of um, like air. Um, but also, all the cells lining the surface of the colon and the small intestine will renew themselves every like few like days up to weeks. So after, let's say, three weeks, everything is completely new and shiny in there. And w when you just eat like healthy and not too bad and treat your gut right for like three weeks, it should be like a pretty clean thing. Like watch your bowel movements a little bit so everything gets out. If you're like a constipated type, of course, take care. But then like your gut really cleans itself on a normal basis. So I think for regular recommendation, I would say know this and trust and work together. And then I know there are some diseases where people like 
kept telling me, like uh, when, I, uh, when I saw patients in the hospital, they just kept telling me it helped them so much with migraines or other things. So I would not be the one to tell them they're not right because they're in their body and if they feel it helps them, I'm okay with this. There was a meta study showing that if you do this like for all kinds of things, there can be side effects, there can be um, destruction sometimes when it's done not proper or when the pressure is too high. So you have to be careful with those things. But if there are people who really say, say it helps them, I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. Just like also know your body cleans itself too. Mm. And then uh, the other... And then there was a taking the swab of, from oh, your yeah. vagina as well. Yeah, you true. Um, when my sister was pregnant, we were talking about this also because we said, what if it's a cesarean section? We've born been birthed by, like, born by a cesarean section. And um, so I would have done this if, my, if it had been the case that my sister could have not delivered naturally. She did. It was a 10-pound baby, and my Oi. sister is my physique, so we were oh. like, how? Like, how does this even happen? <laughs> it worked, but like, we were prepared it would be the other way, maybe. And with that, I just want to also know that you have to know some things behind it. If, if it's stored away for too long, mm -hmm. some bacteria, because you don't go all the way to the end where it's no. the most safe. The most safe is at the entry of the womb because that's where the bacteria are really organizing to protect like, like watchdogs. So they are like really um, the best acidic and the most like protective ones. But you have to go there by going to the front first and this is the other way around than the birthers. So you like maybe get some bacteria that aren't just good and protective. Mm. There will also maybe be other ones. So um, the thing is it can't be stored for too long um, because they might overgrow the other ones and then it's really not a nice thing to do for mm. your child. So there are some things to watch out for and I know there are trials now in, in a few hospitals, at least in Germany, um, that do this on a scientific basis and they test everything before they apply and so there is already science happening and I hope this yeah. progresses fast enough so we can do this safe. But to be honest, I would have done it if, it, if my sister would have had a C-section because I feel safe with like handling bacteria. It's but, so interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. I can just imagine the baby going, oh, mum, what is that for us? It's coming out. Very quick question from you. I was just wondering what you feel the importance of, of the way you chew your food, the rate and how much you chew your food when you're eating on gut health. And just before, I'll just grab your question while you're there too. Or did you just ask one? Yeah, so chewing of food. I'll grab the last two. Thanks. I just want to say, Julia, thank you so much because I'm a psychologist and one of the things that really stands out to me about what you've done with your work is um, really start to dismantle shame around the body. Um, we work with a lot of clients with trauma and other mental health issues that mean that they have a very negative relationship to the body. I think you kind of answered some questions for me a little earlier when you started talking about some of the behavioural things that we can do um, when we're eating and it's certainly going to get me thinking with my clients. Often what we do as psychologists is we ask clients to get their brain to relax their body um, and for someone with a history of trauma that's very confronting because it means mm. sitting with whatever's going on. Um, what, what some of the things that you're saying is if I actually just tune into my body and eat in a different way those are the questions that I think I'm going to start asking about. Um, I guess one of the questions was, if we do, if people are slowing those things down and working out their, what, their, what their body needs more, do the bacteria start to change or at what rate? Like okay. when the stress response starts to 
quieten down. Yeah, how fast does that flora start to shift? Thank you very much. And we're just out of time, so quick answers. All right. Um, I think. Thank you. Great, great last question. Chewing probably is important also because when you eat in a calm way, you might take more time or not. But I, I don't know because I don't have like facts or have read about this more. So I'm very vague on this actually. Um, one of my professors stated that the amount of enzymes in our saliva is actually really too little to really start digesting much, and that it's more to keep up the dental hygiene after you've eaten. I don't know if that's true. I find it interesting. But yeah, I guess that's all I know on this. <laughs> yes. And um, uh, and, and the, the, if, if you do change some of your ah, behaviors right. and awarenesses, the does the flora itself yeah. change? We see, for example, with changing your diet, this is surprisingly fast. So if you eat a, if a very meat-based diet and you suddenly change to a vegetarian diet, this happens even after a few days that the first changes really become visible. So it's actually in, with some like crucial things like eating protein or like meat or plant, this happens quite fast. Mm. With stress, for example, I don't know. I know that people who are stressed have like um, a long period of stress and uh, could sometimes even um, slip into depression because of that. It's uh, proven that they have different gut bacteria, probably also other things like the immune system being different than um, influencing this, so it's not only a one-way thing. Um, but I don't know about the psychological things, how fast those change. But when you look at the food, it's pretty fast. Pretty fast. Look, you, it is, this is the All About Women Festival, and I was really struck before we, uh, as we were speaking outside, that you thank your mother and your sister and your grandmother, who you said really imbued in you a great love of learning for the sake of the love of learning. Mm. And I can just feel it in you as you talk. I think we all do. And just briefly and finally, what are you going to do next? Well, I'll just be at the hospital with a white coat and, like, <laughs> <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah, and just is probably the wrong word because I'm very nervous. I hope I'll learn fast and like get the techniques and the craft right as fast as possible because that's still all ahead of me, like getting all the experience. Yeah. Well, look, what a wonderful treat to host you here at the All About Women <laughs> Festival. Thank, thank you, thank so, you much. so much, Julia. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you. <laughs>